0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art. Welcome back. Welcome if you are new. I hope that you are having a wonderful Christmas season. Well, after having several interviews out in a row, I'm looking forward today to bringing you a story. I'll talk about the story in a minute. Uh, But first, I want to acknowledge one of my favorite Christmas stories. Now, you all know That story is A Christmas Carol. I mean, no surprise if you've listened to even a few of my episodes. Uh, But this year marks the 180th anniversary of Dickens' classic Christmas work. Some of you might know that I also host another podcast called The Bookshelf Odyssey. And if you go to The Bookshelf Odyssey's YouTube channel, over there I'm posting a series of, of hopefully short videos Talking about different parts of the Christmas Carol that I enjoy, talking about some of my favorite characters, my uh, favorite scenes, my favorite dialogue, reasons why I think it is an enduring classic, Uh, just whatever came to mind. I recorded some just various thoughts about A Christmas Carol and, and put that up on my YouTube channel, and I'll be releasing short videos between now and until the end of December talking about that book as a way of celebrating a Christmas carol. I will make sure to link that in the show notes if you want to go and follow me over there. I'd love to see you on that channel. Well, the Christmas Book Club, we finished reading our book, Christmas by the Book, and really enjoyed that, I think, and and had some great discussion. But one of my followers and a huge supporter of our show, Angela, she had asked me a great question in the comments, and one that I posted I reposted in the in the book club Facebook page. And that is, if you could play any character in A Christmas Carol, which one would you want to be and why? And so then I I said, if you go ahead and comment and then I'll read them out on the podcast. So let's look at a few of them. Jeffrey, he said, I did like his performance, George C. Scott's performance, but for some reason, the over the top lightning thunder at the end almost ruined the entire show for me. So uh, others have said, let uh, see, Michael Fields said he would love to play Bob Cratchit. You know, he's, who wouldn't? I mean, uh, he, he's one on mine, on my list for sure. And then uh, Michael McCarty, he actually plays numerous roles in an annual production, but his favorite is Mr. Fezziwig. Mr. Fezziwig doesn't have a, a huge role in the book, but if, I think he has a very important one. It's one of those small but important roles. And then Angela started this whole thing off. She said, I think I'd like to play the ghost of Christmas past. The lines are very powerful and would be fun to master. Not that I could. A girl can dream, though. And then she leaves a quote. What? exclaimed the ghost. Would you so soon put out with worldly hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap and forced me through Whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow. And, ah, great scene. Yeah, some really good dialogue there. I I mentioned a few that I would like, you know, of course, play Scrooge. But if I couldn't have the main role, I would like to be the ghost of Christmas present. You know, if we're casting this, Angela, you can go ahead and be the ghost of Christmas past. I'll be the ghost of Christmas present. And if there's somebody out there who isn't good at memorizing lines... Then uh, you can sign up for the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, and then again Jeffrey mentions that he'd like to play Fred. Uh, the role is short, important, but not too many lines. Although he thought he was maybe a little too old, so he would settle for one of those uh, for one of the businessmen near the end who would not want to go to Scrooge's funeral unless, of course, lunch is provided. Donald J has said that he would love to try his hand at Scrooge. The character is so deep on many levels and the character arc is so dynamic I think it would be a real challenge. You know, he hits the nail right on the head there. What I love about Scrooge as a character is that he could so easily be a caricature but he comes across as a very conflicted, nuanced, layered character. There's just a lot of great acting potential there. And then, oh, you know, here we go. Uh, Jeffrey again chimes in and says that he might do great at as the spirit of Christmas yet to to come uh, with his memory being what it is. So, all right. So we have our three ghosts. I think Jacob Marley is still up for uh, for grabs if anyone wants to be Jacob Marley. Um, but that was really fun. I enjoyed that discussion. It just reminds me of why I love this book so much. And as I mentioned in a previous episode about um, Gerald Dickens's one-man performance, uh, he has been performing that for... Thirty years this year—that marks his anniversary. He obviously started it as uh, during a Christmas Carol's 150th year. It's turned into a career for him. Though I didn't get to see him in person, like I mentioned, I have the DVD, and I'll be able to watch him perform still. And uh, so I'll I'll have to settle for that. Uh, But he's also written a book about his experiences uh, performing a Christmas Carol for the last 30 years. It's on my Christmas list, wish list. We'll see what Santa brings me. And if not, I'm just going to go out and buy it. (laughs) So I guess that's what you can do when you're old. Uh, But I'm looking forward to reading about his memories over these last 30 years. His performance is one I've seen so many times over the past 10 or 12 years or so. I, I just, it's not Christmas until I can hear him, you know, recite A Christmas Carol. I've got an audiobook version as well of Gerald Dickens reading A Christmas Carol, and it's fantastic. It's available in Audible. It's a really excellent reading. You know, if you're looking for a good audio version, I would recommend that. I'll I'll link that in the show notes. You know, I'm not getting paid for it. This isn't a commercial. I'm just a big fan of his work. And uh, these are some things and ways I'll be celebrating Dickens' 180-year anniversary of A Christmas Carol. So again, if you could go to Arts Bookshelf Odyssey on YouTube, you can catch me over there with some videos talking more in depth about why I love A Christmas Carol and what I love about it. For our story today, I will be reading an Anthony Trollope Christmas classic and it's called Christmas at Thompson Hall. Now, this will be part one of three, I think, as it is a little bit of a longer short story. Now, Anthony Trollope was a Victorian writer. He lived from 1815 to 1882. He was contemporary with Dickens. Now, if you have not read any Anthony Trollope, I would highly recommend you go and fix that right now. (laughs) He ended up writing quite a few novels. I want to say in the range of 50 to 60 novels. I haven't read them all yet, but many that I have read have been excellent. And so starting this next year, I'm going to be slowly working my way through his entire catalog. I've read enough by him that you know I, I, I know I'm going to enjoy many more of his of his stories. In the middle of being a prodigious writer, he also worked for the British Postal Service. The reason why he was able to write so much in his life while still working full time is that he was a very disciplined writer. He would set himself a daily word count and he would meet that goal every day. And as soon as he got to the end, you know, he would stop. It's been said that even if he was in the middle of a sentence, he would put his pen down because he has finished his daily word count. If he finished a novel but still had words left to reach his daily goal, he would start a new novel. My favorite books of his are the ones in the Barsetshire series. It begins with The Warden, and followed by Barchester Towers. And I would recommend reading both of those back to back. The Warden is very short, so it's more accessible, but you know the story might not be quite as engaging as the rest in the series. And they were all just really wonderful. Some. A little more than others, uh, you have reoccurring characters through the series, just a humorous narrator throughout. Um, he's written another series as well that is called the Palliser novels. Barsetshire tends to look more at the the politics of the church and the church structure. Palliser tends to be a little more on the political side, well, it is on the political side. Plus, numerous standalone novels that are really worth reading. Like, he he knew he was right, the way we live now, and uh, many more. So, a prolific writer. And I'm pleased to say that he has written many short stories, as well as a few Christmas stories. So, I'll be reading Christmas at Thompson Hall. So, with that, I will invite you to come in and make yourself comfortable by The Christmas Fire. And I'll read to you Christmas at Thompson Hall by Anthony Trollope. CHRISTMAS AT THOMPSON HALL MRS. BROWN'S SUCCESS Everyone remembers the severity of the Christmas of 1870 blank. I will not designate the year more closely, lest I should enable those who are too curious to investigate the circumstances of this story, and inquire into details which I do not intend to make known. That winter, however, was especially severe, and the cold of the last ten days of December was more felt, I think, in Paris than in any part of England. It may indeed be doubted whether there is any town in any country in which thoroughly bad weather is more afflicting than in the French capital. Snow and hail seem to be colder there, and fires certainly are less warm than in London. And then there is a feeling among visitors to Paris that Paris ought to be gay, that gaiety, prettiness, and liveliness are its aims, as money, commerce, and general business are the aims of London, which, with its outside somber darkness, does often seem to want an excuse for its ugliness. But on this occasion, at this Christmas of 1870 blank, Paris was neither gay nor pretty nor lively. You could not walk the streets without being ankle-deep not in snow, but in snow that had just become slush and there were falling throughout the day and night of the 23rd of December a succession of damp, half-frozen abominations from the sky which made it almost impossible for men and women to go about their business. It was at 10 o'clock on that evening that an English lady and gentleman arrived at the Grand Hotel on the Boulevard des Italiens. As I have reasons for concealing the names of this married couple, I will call them Mr. and Mrs. Brown. Now I wish it to be understood that in all the general affairs of life, this gentleman and this lady lived happily together, with all the amenities which should bind a husband and wife. Mrs. Brown was of a wealthy family, and Mr. Brown, when he married her, had been relieved from the necessity of earning his bread. Nevertheless, she had at once yielded to him when he expressed a desire to spend the winters of their life in the south of France. And he though he was by disposition somewhat idle, and but little prone to the energetic occupations of life, would generally allow himself, at other periods of the year, to be carried hither and thither by her, whose more robust nature delighted in the excitement of traveling. But on this occasion, there had been a little difference between them. Early in December, an intimation had reached Mrs. Brown at Pow that on the coming Christmas there was to be a great gathering of all the Thompsons in the Thompson Family Hall at stratford le beaux and that she, who had been a Thompson, was desired to join the party with her husband. On this occasion, her only sister was desirous of introducing to the family, generally, a most excellent young man to whom she had recently become engaged. The Thompsons, the real name, however, is in fact concealed, were a numerous and a thriving people. There were uncles and cousins and brothers who had all done well in the world, and who were all likely to do better still. One had lately been returned to Parliament for the Essex Flats, and was at the time of which I am writing a conspicuous member of the gallant conservative majority. It was partly in triumph at this success that the great Christmas gathering of the Thompsons was to be held. And an opinion had been expressed by the legislature himself that, should Mrs. Brown, with her husband, fail to join the family on this happy occasion, she and he would be regarded as being fainant Thompsons. Since her marriage, which was an affair now nearly eight years old, Mrs. Brown had never passed a Christmas in England. The desirability of doing so had often been mooted by her. Her very soul craved the festivities of Holly and mince-pies. There had ever been meetings of the Thompsons at Thompson Hall, though meetings not so significant, not so important to the family, as this one, which was now to be collected. More than once had she expressed a wish to see old Christmas again in the old house among the old faces. But her husband had always pleaded a certain weakness about his throat and chest as a reason for remaining among the delights of Pa. Year after year she had yielded, and now this loud summons had come. It was not without considerable trouble that she had induced Mr. Brown to come as far as Paris. Most unwillingly had he left Pa, and then twice on his journey, both at Bordeaux and Tours, he had made an attempt to return. From the first moment he had pleaded his throat, and when at last he had consented to make the journey, he had stipulated for sleeping at those two towns and at paris mrs brown who without the slightest feeling of fatigue could have made the journey from paw to stratford without stopping had assented to everything so that they might be at thompson hall on christmas eve when mr brown uttered his unavailing complaints at the two first towns at which they stayed she did not perhaps quite believe all that he said of his own condition We know how prone the strong are to suspect the weakness of the weak, as the weak are to be disgusted by the strength of the strong. There were perhaps a few words between them on the journey, but the result had hitherto been in favor of the lady. She had succeeded in bringing Mr. Brown as far as Paris. Had the occasion been less important, no doubt she would have yielded. The weather had been bad even when they left Pa. But as they had made their way northwards, it had become worse and still worse. As they left tours, Mr. Brown, in a hoarse whisper, had declared his conviction that the journey would kill him. Mrs. Brown, however, had unfortunately noticed half an hour before that he had scolded the waiter on the score of an overcharged franc or two with a loud and clear voice. Had she really believed that there was danger, or even suffering, she would have yielded but no woman is satisfied in such a matter to be taken in by false pretenses. She observed that he ate a good dinner on his way to Paris, and that he took a small glass of cognac with complete relish, which a man really suffering from bronchitis surely would not do. So she persevered and brought him into Paris late in the evening in the midst of all that slush and snow. Then as they sat down to supper, she thought that he did speak hoarsely, And her loving feminine heart began to misgive her. But this now was, at any rate, clear to her that he could not be worse off by going on to London than he would be should he remain in Paris. If a man is to be ill, he had better be ill in the bosom of his family than at a hotel. What comfort could he have? What relief in that huge barrack? As for the cruelty of the weather, London could not be worse than Paris. And then she thought she had heard that sea air is good for a sore throat. In that bedroom, which had been allotted to them a quatreme, they could not even get a decent fire. It would in every way be wrong now to forego the great Christmas gathering when nothing could be gained by staying in Paris. She had perceived that as her husband became really ill, he became also more tractable and less and less disputatious. Immediately after that little glass of cognac, he had declared that he would be blank if he would go beyond Paris, and she began to fear that, after all, everything would have been done in vain. But as they went down to supper between ten and eleven, he was more subdued, and merely remarked that this journey would, he was sure, be the death of him. It was half past eleven when they got back to their bedroom, and then he seemed to speak with good sense, and also with much real apprehension. If I can't get something to relieve me, I know I shall never make my way on," he said. It was intended that they should leave the hotel at half-past 5 the next morning so as to arrive at Stratford travelling by the tidal train at half-past 7 on Christmas Eve. The early hour, the long journey, the infamous weather, the prospect of that horrid gulf between Boulogne and Folkestone would have n- been would have been as nothing to Mrs Brown had it not been for that settled look of anguish which had now pervaded her husband's face. If you don't find something to relieve me, I shall never live through it. He said again, sinking back into the questionable comfort of a Parisian hotel armchair. But my dear, what can I do? she asked, almost in tears, standing over him and caressing him. He was a thin, genteel looking man with a fine long, soft brown beard. Little bald at the top of the head, but certainly a genteel-looking man. She loved him dearly, and in her uh, and in her softer moods, was apt to spoil him with her caresses. What can I do, my dearie? You know I would do anything if I could. Get into bed, my pet, and be warm. And then tomorrow morning you will be all right. At this moment he was preparing himself for his bed, and she was assisting him. Then she tied a piece of flannel round his throat and kissed him and put him in beneath the bedclothes. "'I'll tell you what you can do,' he said very hoarsely. His voice was so bad now that she could hardly hear him. So she crept close to him and bent over him. She would do anything if he would only say what. Then he told her what was his plan. Down in the salon, he had seen a large jar of mustard standing on a sideboard. As he left the room, he had observed that this had not been withdrawn with the other appurtenances of the meal. If she could manage to find her way down there, taking with her a handkerchief folded for the purpose, and if she could then appropriate a part of the contents of that jar and, returning with her prize, apply it to his throat, he thought that he could get some relief so that he might be able to leave his bed the next morning at five. But I am afraid it will be very disagreeable for you, to go down all alone at this time of night, he croaked out in a piteous whisper. Of course I'll go, she said. I don't mind going in the least. Nobody will bite me, and she at once began to fold a clean handkerchief. I won't be two minutes, my darling, and if there is a grain of mustard in the house, I'll have it on your chest almost immediately. She was a woman not easily cowed, and the journey down into the salon was nothing to her. Before she went, she tucked the clothes carefully up to his ears, and then she started. To run along the first corridor till she came to a flight of stairs was easy enough, and easy enough to descend them. Then there was another corridor, and another flight, and a third corridor, and a third flight, and she began to think that she was wrong. She found herself in a part of the hotel which she had not hitherto visited, and soon discovered by looking through an open door or two that she had found her way among a set of private sitting rooms, which she had not seen before. Then she tried to make her way back, up the same stairs and through the same passages, so that she might start again. She was beginning to think she had lost herself altogether, and that she would be able to find neither the salon nor her bedroom when she happily met the night porter. She was dressed in a loose white dressing gown, with a white net over her loose hair, and with white worsted slippers i ought perhaps to have described her personal appearance sooner she was a large woman with a commanding bust thought by some to be handsome after the manner of juno but with strangers there was a certain severity of manner about her a fortification as it were of her virtue against all possible attacks a declared determination to maintain at all points the beautiful character of a british matron which much as it had been appreciated at thompson hall had met with some ill-natured criticism among French men and women. At pas, she had been called La Fière Anglaise. The name had reached her own ears and those of her husband. He had been much annoyed, but she had taken it in good part, and had endeavored to live up to it. With her husband she could, on occasion, be soft, but she was of the opinion that with other men a British matron should be stern. She was now greatly in want of assistance, but nevertheless when she met the porter she remembered her character i have lost my way wandering through these horrid passages she said in her severest tone this was an answer to some question from him some question to which her reply was given very slowly then when he asked where madame wished to go she paused again thinking what destination she would announce no doubt the man could take her back to her bedroom but if so the mustard must be renounced, and with the mustard, as she now feared, all hope of reaching Thompson Hall on Christmas Eve. But she, though she was in many respects a brave woman, did not dare tell the man that she was prowling about the hotel, in order that she might make a midnight raid upon the mustard pot. She paused, therefore, for a moment, that she might collect her thoughts, erecting her head as she did so in her best Juno fashion, till the porter was lost in admiration. Thus, she gained time to fabricate a tale. She had, she said, dropped her handkerchief under the supper table. Would he show her the way to the salon in order that she might pick it up? But the porter did more than that and accompanied her to the room in which she had supped. Here, of course, there was a prolonged and, it need hardly be said, a vain search. The good-natured man insisted on emptying an enormous receptacle of soiled table napkins, and on turning them over one by one in order that the lady's property might be found. The lady stood by unhappy, but still patient, and, as the man was stooping to his work, her eye was on the mustard pot. There it was, capable of containing enough to blister the throats of a score of sufferers. She edged off a little towards it while the man was busy, trying to persuade herself that he would surely forgive her if she took the mustard and told him her whole story. But the descent from her Juno bearing would have been so great. She must have owned not only to the quest for mustard, but also to a fib, and she could not do it. The porter was at last of the opinion that Madame must have made a mistake, and Madame acknowledged that she was afraid it was so. With a longing, lingering eye, with an eye turned back, oh, so sadly, to the great jar, she left the room, the porter leading the way the porter leading the way. She assured him that she would find it by herself, but he would not leave her till he had put her on to the proper passage. The journey seemed to be longer now, even than before, but as she ascended the many stairs she swore to herself that she would not even yet be balked of her object. Should her husband want comfort for his poor throat, and the comfort be there within her reach, and he not have it? She counted every stair as she went up, and marked every turn well. She was sure now that she would know the way, and that she could return to the room without fault. She would go back to the salon. Even though the man should encounter her again, she would go boldly forward and seize the remedy which her poor husband so grievously required. "'Oh, yes,' she said when the porter told her that her room, number 333, was in the corridor which they had then reached. "'I know it all now. I am so much obliged. Do not come a step further.' He was anxious to accompany her up to the very door, but she stood in the passage and prevailed. He lingered a while, naturally. Unluckily, she had brought no money with her and could not give him the two-franc piece which he had earned, nor could she fetch it from her room, feeling that, were she to return to her husband without the mustard, no second attempt would be possible. The disappointed man turned on his heel at last and made his way down the stairs and along the passage. It seemed to her to be almost an eternity while she listened to his still, audible footsteps. She had gone on, creeping noiselessly up to the very door of her room, and there she stood shading the candle in her hand, till she thought that the man must have wandered away into some furthest corner of that endless building. Then she turned once more and retraced her steps. There is no difficulty now as to the way. She knew it every stair. At the head of each flight she stood and listened, but not a sound was to be heard. And then she went on again. Her heart beat high with anxious desire to achieve her object, and at the same time with fear. What might have been explained so easily at first would now be as difficult of explanation. At last she was in the great public vestibule, which she was now visiting for the third time, and of which, at her last visit, she had taken the bearings accurately. The door was there, closed indeed, but it opened easily to the hand. In the hall and on the stairs, and along the passages, there had been gas, but here there was no light beyond that given by the little taper which she carried. When accompanied by the porter, she had not feared the darkness, but now there was something in the obscurity which made her dread to walk the length of the room up to the mustard jar. She paused and listened and trembled. Then she thought of the glories of Thompson Hall, of the genial warmth of a British Christmas, of that proud legislator, who was her first cousin, and with a rush she made good the distance, and laid her hand upon the copious Delft. She looked round, but there was no one there. No sound was heard, not the distant creak of a shoe, not a rattle from one of those doors. As she paused with her fair hand upon the top of the jar, while the other held the white cloth on which the medicinal compound was to be placed, She looked like Lady Macbeth as she listened at Duncan's chamber door. There was no doubt as to the sufficiency of the contents. The jar was full nearly up to the lips. The mixture was, no doubt, very different from that good wholesome English mustard, which your cook makes fresh for you. With a little water, in two minutes, it was impregnated with sour odor and was, to English eyes, unwholesome of color. But still it was mustard she seized the horn spoon and without further delay spread an ample sufficiency on the folded square of the handkerchief then she commenced to hurry her return but still there was a difficulty no thought of which had occurred to her before the candle occupied one hand so that she had but the other for the sustenance of her treasure had she brought a plate or saucer from the salon it would have been all well as it was she was obliged to keep her eye intent on her right hand and to proceed very slowly on her return journey. She was surprised to find what an aptitude the thing had to slip from her grasp. But still, she progressed slowly and was careful not to miss a turning. At last, she was safe at her chamber door. There it was, number 333. Christmas at Thompson Hall, Part 2 Mrs. Brown's Failure With her eyes still fixed upon her burden, she glanced up at the number of the door. Three, three, three. She had been determined all through not to forget that. Then she turned the latch and crept in. The chamber was also dark after the gaslight on the stairs, but that was so much the better. She herself had put out the two candles on the dressing table before she had left her husband. As she was closing the door behind her, she paused and could hear that he was sleeping. She was well aware that she had been long absent quite long enough for a man to fall into slumber who was given that way she must have been gone she thought fully an hour there had been no end to that turning over of napkins which she had so well known to be altogether vain she paused at the center table of the room still looking at the mustard which she now delicately dried from off her hand she had no idea that it would have been so difficult to carry so light and so small an affair but there it was and nothing had been lost She took some small instrument from the washing stand and with the handle collected the flowing fragments into the center. Then the question occurred to her whether, as her husband was sleeping so sweetly, it would be well to disturb him. It would be well to disturb him. She listened again and felt that the slight murmur of a snore with which her ears were regaled was altogether free from any real malady in the throat. Then it occurred to her that after all, Fatigue, perhaps, had only made him cross. She bethought herself how, during the whole journey, she had failed to believe in his illness, what meals he had eaten, how thoroughly he had been able to enjoy his full complement of cigars, and then that glass of brandy against which she had raised her voice slightly in feminine opposition, and now he was sleeping there like an infant, with full, round, perfected, almost sonorous workings of the throat." Who does not know that sound, almost of two rusty bits of iron scratching against each other which comes from a suffering windpipe? There is no semblance of that here. Why disturb him when he was so thoroughly enjoying that rest which, more certainly than anything else, would fit him for the fatigue of the morrow's journey? I think that, after all her labor, she would have left the pungent cataplasm on the table, and have crept gently into bed beside him, Had not a thought suddenly struck her of the great injury he had been doing her, if he were not really ill? To send her down there in a strange hotel, wandering among the passages in the middle of the night, subject to the contumely of any one who might meet her, on a commission which, if it were not sanctioned by absolute necessity, would be so thoroughly objectionable. At this moment, she hardly did believe that he had ever really been ill. Let him have the cataplasm, if not as a remedy, then as a punishment. It could, at any rate, do him no harm. It was with an idea of avenging rather than of justifying the past labors of the night that she proceeded at once to quick action. Leaving the candle on the table so that she might steady her right hand with the left, she hurried stealthily to the bedside. Even though he was behaving badly to her, she would not cause him discomfort by waking him roughly. She would do a wife's duty to him as a British matron should. She would not only put the warm mixture on his neck, but would sit carefully by him for twenty minutes, so that she might relieve him from it when the proper period should have come for removing the counter-irritation from his throat. There would doubtless be some little difficulty in this, in collecting the mustard after it had served her purpose. Had she been at home, surrounded by her own comforts, the application would have been made with some delicate linen bag, through which the pungency of the spice would have penetrated with strength sufficient for the purpose. But the circumstance of the occasion had not admitted this. She had, she felt, done wonders in achieving so much success at this, as this which she had obtained. If there should be anything disagreeable in the operation, he must submit to it. He had asked for mustard for his throat, and mustard he should have. As these thoughts passed quickly through her mind, Leaning over him in the dark, with her eye fixed on the mixture lest it should slip, she gently raised his flowing beard with her left hand, and with her other inverted rapidly, steadily, but very softly, fixed the handkerchief on his throat. From the bottom of his chin to the spot at which the collar bones, meeting together, formed the orifice of the chest, it covered the whole noble expanse. There was barely time for a glance, but never had she been more conscious of the grand proportions of that manly throat. A sweet feeling of pity came upon her, causing her to determine to relieve his sufferings in the shorter space of fifteen minutes. He had been lying on his back with his lips apart, and as she held back his beard, that in her hand nearly covered the features of his face. But he made no violent effort to free himself from the encounter. He did not even move an arm or a leg. He simply emitted a snore louder than any that had come before. She was aware that it was not his wont to be so loud, that there was generally something more delicate and perhaps more querulous in his nocturnal voice, but then the present circumstances were exceptional. She dropped the beard very softly, and there, on the pillow before her, lay the face of a stranger. She had put the mustard plaster on the wrong man. All right. Well, I think we will go ahead and stop there today. I think I mentioned there would be three parts. There's actually I'm going to read it in four parts between now and Christmas. I love the story. One of the things that Trollope does so well is that his narrators, the people telling the story in the book, often are themselves a character in the story, and and you can really see that in in this story that he. You know, wants to change the names to protect the innocent, you know he and you can see by the ending that there's possibly scandal afoot now. uh, so basically, Mr. and Mrs. Brown were invited to go to Thompson Hall for Christmas, and that's Mrs Brown's family. but Mr. Brown always finds an excuse not to go, but Mrs. Brown finally gets her way, and he's whining and complaining the whole trip and and claims to be sick so Mrs. Brown, being a a tender and loving wife, she's going to prepare a mustard plaster for his, uh, you know, for his throat. It was was kind of a a Victorian medicine that would, you know, help open up the airways and and get breathing to be restored and soothe a sore throat. But, you know, things being what they are, they're sleeping in a new place. She's been frustrated. She's probably tired. She gets lost. She deals with a very helpful... (laughs) who she just wants to go away and now she finds that she's not only been in the room of somebody not her husband but she's been really i mean she's she got into bed with him she's been you know touching you know not inappropriately but very intimately so what's going to happen to poor mrs brown how is she going to get out of this this fix that she's in and will mr brown ever stop complaining in time for them to make it to thompson hall for christmas well stay tuned for the next installment as we'll read part two of Christmas at Thompson Hall by Anthony Trollope thank you so much for listening to the Cozy Christmas Podcast if you'd like to help support the show the best thing that you can do is to share it on your social media account share it with a friend leave us a rating and a review because that really does help get the word out I could not do this without you guys and I appreciate it all so much if you would like to help us out in a financial way there are several options for you listed in the show notes you can make a donation on ko-fi.com and if you send me your address I will send out a Christmas card with a bookmark or sticker as my way of saying thank you there's also uh, some t-shirts podcast merchandise hand painted ornaments I've done over the uh, this past year and a special thank you To Karen and Angela, your support, not just your financial support, but your encouragement, your positivity, your absolute joy over what I do here really helps keep the podcast moving. And it keeps me inspired to keep doing what I'm doing. So thank you and others who have given so generously this past year. Thank you. And until next time, let's remember to honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.